Welcome to this week's episode of the Compass Equip Podcast. I'm Pastor Hayden, and joined with me to my right is Pastor Evan. You had to think about that, didn't you? Well, I just wanted to, I don't know. Hi, Compass. How are you doing? You know, here at Compass Bible Church, we exist to make disciples. That's all we talked about today in our sermon is disciple making. And uh, everything we do at our church is about making disciples. We reach people for Christ, we teach people to be like Christ, and we train people to serve Christ. Everything we do here at Compass, including this very podcast uh, for you guys, is to fulfill the mission of making disciples by reaching, teaching, and training. We are in the third installment of our current series, Trials and Triumph, and this sermon was entitled, Fishers of Men. Pastor Evan, would you like to read the text in Matthew four eighteen through 22? It would be my absolute pleasure. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. I kind of like the little clarification right yeah. there. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat, their father, and followed him. All right, Pastor Hayden, what was the main point and thrust of your sermon this morning? Uh, simply this, that followers, disciple, Christian, all those synonymous words uh, of Jesus, followers of Jesus leave their old lives behind and take on the role of a disciple who in turn makes disciples. That's, that's the identity. That's our new identity. We're followers of Christ. We're disciples. We're Christians. And uh, the call to salvation is to leave our old lives behind, turn from that life, turn from our sin, place our trust in Christ, and now we are a disciple. And now our role and our mission is the mission of our Lord who called us to make disciples. All right. Well, Pastor Hayden, i, I got to written down some few questions. Uh, first, before we jump into the points, you know, being Christian— is a disciple, and you've made it made it clear that you know a disciple and Christian are the same thing. You mm-hmm. know, a Christian doesn't just like, oh now I'm a disciple now. No, you are a, a disciple ever since you become a Christian. Right. Uh, the first part of the question is how has our culture separated the idea of, between Christian and disciple, and why is it incorrect in, in its thinking? And then the second question then is the difference between disciple and discipling. Yeah, I think the reasons for the bifurcation of disciple and Christian could be manifold, could be many, right? I I mean, I couldn't probably begin to tell you every reason why that's probably the case. However, some of the reasons and rationale may be uh, an explanation of, okay, Christians are people who just, you know, are saved, and disciples are just the really, really committed, saved people. Like, we we try to create a two-tiered Christianity or a JV and a varsity Christianity of, you know, JV is just, that's where most of us are, but they're those really serious people. We can call them disciples, and they're the ones who actually go and do uh, the work of of Christ. And it's uh, an unfortunate distinction because it doesn't exist in Scripture. It's a distinction that we have made on our own in our world that that doesn't exist uh, particularly when we look at the call of Christ on the lives of anyone. Those he calls to salvation, he's, he called to follow him as a disciple. And so uh, that in and of itself, in, in simple form, is the fact that if we're a Christian, we're a disciple. If we're a disciple, we're a Christian. And we got to make sure that those definitions match in our heart and our mind in our lives because there is no difference. And if we're trying to call somebody a Christian, uh, we have to we have to have the same... Uh, parameters for Christian as we do disciple. Turn from your sin, place your trust in the Christ, follow Jesus, his life, his ministry, his mission. 
All right, so point number one was for us to get to know Jesus. And even though it might sound elementary or simple, really the implications are, are quite profound. And so why, it's kind of talking about this. A lot of times when maybe we're counseling or meeting people, I'm a stranger talking to a stranger, telling them to follow a stranger. Right. Why is it important for us not to just follow the stranger Jesus, rather to follow the Jesus in, in the Bible? Yeah, you, you follow what you know. And... Uh, you know, in our culture, in our world, and I think throughout history, I mean, there's people who like adventure or people who want to go to the unknown, but, you know, the unknown isn't what we're, we're following here. We're following the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Him who have been clothed in humanity, the Son of God who has come out of um, the heaven from the right hand of the Father to put on flesh. And so, I mean, these things we, we know, and it's just not knowing of those things or knowing about those things. It's being in a relationship with Christ of knowing Him and Him knowing me uh, through uh, our relationship. And so when we talk about getting to know Jesus, it's fundamental to the confidence to follow Jesus. Uh, and there's a lot of people, like I said in my sermon, who claim to know Christ, but uh, they don't really know him. You know, they claim him, but they don't know him. Uh, they claim to know how to tell people to follow him, but yet in their own lives, they do not know how to follow him. And those things are really important. Which leads to the next to question. How can we as a church know that, hey, do I know Christ? Is my life really all about Christ? What what questions or what places should we examine in our lives to see, am I really all about Christ or not? Yeah, I mean, I want let's do something basic. You know, if I ask you, who is Jesus? Well, if you know him, you'd be able to tell me who he is. And it should reflect his character, who he is, who he actually was, not who we think he was. Or the question, of, well, what did Jesus come here for? Or what was Jesus' purpose here on earth? Or why did Jesus come? Or what did Jesus expect from people who called themselves followers of him? I mean, aren't those some basic questions that would lead us to if we studied and understood it, to a really good, uh, firm foundation of this is who Jesus is, what he's about, and what he's called us to. You know, it's answering those fundamental questions that I, I hope we did well in our sermon this morning. And if you wonder what the answer to some of those questions are, you can go to the sermon from this week and learn more about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. But those things are fundamental to knowing what it means to know Jesus. And to know Jesus and what he calls a disciple. And so point number two was for us to reject ambiguous definitions of discipleship. And so with that, maybe the question our church, you know, people in our church are kind of having, is, okay, I need to do this. Where do I practically start? Where, where do I go? I know I need to make disciples of people, but I don't feel like I, I know enough. Or I feel there's some intimidation or, or fear. Where's a practical step to start in the disciple and to make disciples? When we start about we start talking about a disciple, a disciple is made, and you could argue this pretty easily, even pre-conversion. I mean, you have to be discipled unto conversion. So the discipleship starts even before somebody becomes a Christian by getting to know Jesus. And so the role for all of us is start by sharing the gospel with people. Start teaching people about Jesus and then call them to a response to follow Jesus by turning from their sin and trusting in Christ. And so there's a practical way to start. Uh, and the intimidation, if that's because of you feel a lack of uh, discipleship in your own life or a lack of being equipped, uh, insufficiently equipped, maybe a better way to say that, well, well then 
jump into a relationship with somebody where you can take some formal discipleship. You know, none of us are too old or uh, too busy, and if we are, we're just too plain busy, to jump into a relationship with somebody who would help us walk with Christ through the way that that person is walking in their relationship with Christ. And so if intimidation is the problem, take some time to be discipled by someone else, at least uh, formally for a while, and then informally through the cooperation with the community of Christ. You know, just all of us living with one another should embolden us, and uh, even just rubbing shoulders together is going to give us a certain amount of resources and competence, but it'll never... Uh, that will never suffice when it comes to the real relationships you should have with people who are pouring into you and discipling you. So that's a couple of practical ways. Start sharing the gospel, because that's where discipleship starts. And uh, make sure that you have somebody who is ahead of you in their faith that you can look at, that you can follow uh, as they're following Christ. All right, so next question under point number two why is it critical that the people who we are turning to to disciple us, to teach us how to follow Christ, and also in turn, when we're discipling others, why is it just critical or, or vital or essential or necessary, all those words, that we anchor ourselves on Scripture and guard mm-hmm. ourselves from op- opinions? And something that you said I thought was very helpful in the sermon where the question like about who is Jesus Will your answers be ones that you can easily point to in Scripture, or will they just be your thoughts and your best guesses based on what you kind of know? Right. Yeah, you need to follow people who are following Christ. There is there is actually no excuse for why we shouldn't have people in our lives that are investing in us who are ahead of us in their faith. Uh, but we need to make sure those people aren't just giving us their best thoughts about God, but they're giving us... Uh, the Word of God, uh, and they are imitating not just their ideas about Christ, but Christ given in Scripture. And so that when we are following someone, and, and we, we are being discipled by someone who is a disciple, that we're trusting, and we need to even make sure that as we're following that person, that their life is grounded in Scripture, and their life is informed with the Word of God, uh, and that they themselves are plugged into a healthy Bible-teaching church, and that they themselves are connected to uh, to biblical community, and that they themselves are living as a disciple. And once you do those things, I mean, what a wonderful asset and resource would it be to have someone that you depend on and look to for uh, wisdom and guidance. All right, and leading right into point number three, to characterize your discipleship with immediacy, why the urgency? Yeah, I mean, the urgency is very clear. I mean, the Apostle Paul, actually, uh, scholars and commentators talk about how explicit Paul's uh, eminence view of the return of Christ was. And if you don't know what all that means, like Paul, throughout all of his letters, spoke as if Jesus Christ was coming back today. And that eminence view is a very accurate way to describe the, the life of a disciple because Jesus says, I'm coming soon and I bring my recompense with me. Uh, he says that I, when I come, it'll be like a thief in the night. Like we don't know when thieves of the night are coming. We don't know when, uh, we don't, in the blink of an eye, scripture says that, that we will all be changed. And we will all be brought up to Christ. All these things are very quick and the timestamp on these are unknown, but what they are is immediate. And so the sense of urgency is just a, 
uh, response to a biblical framework of what it means to be a disciple. And not only that, uh, the only response to truth is an urgent response. If it's true, then it requires me to uh, respond to it. If Jesus is the Messiah, if he is uh, the Son of God, then whatever he says requires my utmost attention and my immediacy, that I'm close to him so I can do the things of him. You know, that I'm close to Christ, and I'm quick to do the things of Christ for Christ because of who he is and the truth that he has given me. So I'm going to be urgent, especially as I understand that he's coming back and he's coming to bring his reward with him. Awesome. All right, well, Pastor Hayden, we have some application questions uh, this week. Encompass as a reminder, don't be a commentator, be an applicator. applicator. Make sure that you're doing these questions uh, to apply them. But is there any particular direction and guidance you can give us uh, with these questions, Pastor Hayden? Yeah, I really would love, as we walk through these, I mean, the second question is, how can someone mistakenly claim to follow Jesus but fail at knowing him? I think we even have biblical accounts of people who claim to know Christ but know nothing of him. I think of the uh, uh, the men who were beat up by the demon-possessed man uh, because they were trying to cast out uh, the demon in the name of Jesus, and the demon looks at him and he says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of but who are you? You know, like, who in the world do you think you are? And you have these people who are claiming the name of Christ, um, who the demons are like, I don't even know who you are. And who do you know, who do you think you are claiming to be a disciple of Christ? Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of other examples. Obviously, Matthew 7 is, is a good example of people saying they claim to know Christ, but Christ uh, sees them uh, at the judgment and says, I don't know you. Apart from me, I, I don't know you. And so I think it's worth us jumping into and saying, how... How does someone mistakenly claim to follow Christ, but they don't know him? They're actually not followers. So really take your time in that question, because I think that's going to help you be a great disciple maker. If you can start differentiating between people saying they know Christ and people truly knowing Christ and walking with him. Uh, I think, obviously, uh, the third question, I think it's going to be great for you guys to define the role of a disciple. What is a, a disciple? Define it. I'm a, I'm encouraged by this question. I know it's going to be challenging because a lot of us are going to sit there and say, I don't know. You know, that's that's a hard question. Asking anyone to define any word is hard. If I ask you to define celery, right, or or define define the word uh, stop. I mean, that's hard to do. Any defining any word is difficult if you put someone on the spot. And so I know this is going to be difficult, uh, but I I want it to be because I think if you can just stick with a biblical definition of discipleship, it will remove the ambiguity, the vagueness of what a disciple is, and at the end of the day, even in the question, stick with Scripture, and you'll do great. I mean, you may not be able to give the totality of everything that is meant by being a disciple, but you're going to have a good start saying this is what a disciple is. So definitely answer that question. I think it'll be helpful for you. And then define, uh, use your definition and compare it and contrast with some common misconceptions of what it means to follow Jesus. I think that's going to leave some really great opportunities for questioning in your group. Those are just a couple of uh, encouragements, observations, and, and helpful insight I could give you with a few of these questions this week. All right, we're looking forward to doing those questions and seeing what God does to change our lives. All right, Pastor. All right, here we are. We are getting ready for our daily Bible reading spotlight. Pastor Evan, where are we at starting this week? 
Well, we are actually in the Gospel of Mark in Compass. You've already read uh, two chapters of Mark already. And so here I am showing the invisible audience my my new, you know, journal bi- uh, Bible of the Gospel of Mark, which I'm excited to open up this next month. I think we have about what's it? 1 2 3 about 4 weeks in the Gospel of Mark. Do you know what my wife said this week? She says, when she was reading her daily Bible readings, she said, everything we've gone over in Matthew is stated in a couple of verses in Mark. That is the most Markian thing she could have ever said. That was the most Markian thing. So, Compass, what I want to do is give you a short little intro, things to think through and look for as we're reading Mark, because we read a lot of these things. Why you? Well, I'll get there in a second. But I want to talk about resources. Resources. Two resources that we sell in the bookstore and two resources you can buy. First uh, two resources are is a study Bible. We have one a get ESV, you a study Bible. ESV study Bible or a John MacArthur study Bible in the bookstore and the Bible knowledge commentary. Those two resources are ones that I go to on the regular to help refresh my mind of what is going on in mm-hmm. these passages. You know, I'm about 2000 years later than these were written. So I need to make sure, get my feet into the sandals of those who those letters and gospels are written to. So those resources are sold in our bookstore. Highly recommend getting them. There's two uh, more resources that I would recommend. This is more uh, more dense and, uh, and helpful. You can find them on Amazon if you want the full print, or if you want it digitally, you can get it on Logos. Uh, the first one is Four Portraits, One Jesus by Mark Strauss. This is a good book that kind of harmonizes all of the Gospels together to kind of picture the one Jesus with from four portraits of four different angles. And then the next one called The Cradle, The Cross, and The Crown by Kostenberger, Kellum, and Quarles. You know, this is a good book for the entire New Testament. It is about six to seven hundred pages, but it's a good overview of the entire New Testament in in terms of themes, uh, authorship, defending the authorship and the timeline, and also a brief overview of all the areas that you're in. So those are two resources. Um, Four Portraits, One Jesus, The Cradle, The Cross, and The Crown. All right. Well, Compass, let's dive into Mark chapter 1 all the way to verse 6. And so before we begin, we need to make sure that our hearts are prepared not to just gloss over information for the next two books of the Bible that we're reading. Oh, I read this in Matthew. I I know what he's talking about. Well, do you? Hmm. Because Mark is a different author than Matthew. You know, God is the author of the whole Bible. So there's one author. Now, Mark is a different author who's emphasizing something a little different than maybe Matthew. Matthew, what was the point of Matthew? Defending that Jesus was the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke is trying to convince you that Jesus is the new Adam. John is trying to convince you that if you believe in this Jesus, you will have eternal life. So what is Mark's goal? What I love it is that, like Markian fashion, look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He gets to the point. That is literally, you can underline it. This is the thesis statement, the point of Mark. Everything after this is him proving that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So I want to walk through some quick characteristics, and then we'll blast through Mark 1 through 6 pretty quickly because that's how Mark does his thing. And I don't know if you have it in your outline, but just to remember some really important things about Mark, Mark is the shortest gospel. And most likely the first. And most likely the first. And it's the shortest gospel uh, because 
Mark spends little time, particularly on the individual teachings of Christ, he spends his whole time proving that Jesus is the Son of God, and so he moves quickly from one spot to the next as he's going about proving these things, which, you know, the Gospel of Mark uses the word immediately more than any other. Forty times in the first eight chapters. So in eight chapters, you have it 40 times. I believe in the whole Gospel of Matthew, it's in seven times. And so Matthew uses the word immediately, the second most of any of any book in the New Testament, outdone by the book of Mark by an extraordinary amount. And so the uh, quickness in which Mark moves from one scene to the next is just amazingly astonishing. Because it's proving us through the actions of Jesus. And what you're going to notice, to kind of give you an outline, the, the middle point is Mark 8, because there's 16 chapters. And, and funny enough, you know what the middle point of Mark is? It's the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, just mm-hmm. like Matthew. So uh, then there's there's no that's not a coincidence. There's a structure for that. But in the first half, Mark's just blasting through the life of Jesus because he's trying to show through the actions of Christ he is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And then he slows down almost to a, a, a crawl when it comes to the Passion Week right? to really emphasize, okay, we need to sit down and slow down to really emphasize what Jesus is doing here is trying to prove that he is the Son of God. And then mm-hmm. the ending of Mark, the controversial ending, we'll, we'll talk about that probably in the next couple, well, we will talk about in the next couple weeks. And as we look at Mark, we believe that Mark was a, was a, written to a particularly a Gentile group, uh, mostly Most, Greek, right? Mostly Greek and probably written in Rome. He was, our in, in tradition is saying that Mark, John Mark, with a contemporary of Paul, the one that, you know, they, they kind of have a split, in, like a, a, in a reunion. In a reunion. So a just, reconciliation. Like a, just like a band. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they, they had a disagreement, and then they parted ways, but then Paul and Mark reconciled. But he was a disciple of Peter. And this is uh, potentially that Mark wrote his gospel as, as, as an account of Peter's, as Peter's about to die in Rome. And the other way to think about this is you don't see a whole lot of Old Testament quotations, a lot of prophecies. You don't see a lot of the Jewish elements in the gospel of Mark because he's writing to a particularly Greek audience, Gentiles who don't have a lot of the background of the Old Testament. And so in Matthew, you see a lot of this, right? A lot of the teachings that connect to the Mosaic Law, the Torah, Moses, uh, the prophets. And you don't see that a lot in Mark because Mark is talking to a completely different audience. And so you see a a different method of looking at the life of Jesus and proving that he's the Son of God uh, through the eyes of a Gentile, which I think is really remarkable. Remarkable. Wow, you just went there. <laughs> and then one one quick thing on the language of Mark. If you know your Greek, you'll be able to see it more clearly. But I want you to make sure. Raise you your slow hand. Raise down. your hand if you know your Greek. Yeah, raise your hand in the car in your home <laughs> and doing laundry. I'm just kidding. Um, but. Even in the English, you know, it's very rough. It's very just straightforward language. And that's why the ending of Mark is so controversial and where I do agree that it is a shorter version of Matthew 16 right. versus the extended version. Because you're going to pay attention to the style of Mark and all of a sudden at the end of the chapter 16, you're going to go, wait, what? Who, who is this person? What's going on? But that's for in a Another few time. weeks. But what you're going to notice is a few patterns. Mark loves the number three, by the way, <laughs> cycles of three. So just pay attention for that. But he's going to do uh, answer, ask two different questions. The first half of the book is asking the question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? And then the second half from 831 on to 16 verse 8 is essentially either one, why is Jesus going to die? And two, what is a disciple? How, so how funny that these sermons lined up like that. Bam. So God knows that he's doing. And so it's a, what is a view of a, of a disciple? And then two more 
uh, notices is that he doesn't quote the Old Testament a lot, but when he does, he focuses on Isaiah. So just notice that he, he focuses primarily on a Isaiah view of the Bible. And then finally, something I want you to notice is the relationship between people who think they're right with God and people who know they're not right with God. Uh, look at the view of the disciples is kind of, of all the gospels, is the most, people would say maybe the most negative, it's not really the most negative, it's that the disciples just don't look very smart, to be honest, in the gospel, Mark. Um, the Jewish people do not look, there's not a good light on them, except for those who are lepers, people who are sick and diseased and demon-possessed. And notice the reaction of Gentiles. Mark is really challenging the notion of, do you really think you're right with God? Because this is who the Son of God, who is in a right relationship with the Son of God. So those are some things to take notice um, in the Gospel of Mark. There's more, I mean, with the parables and the characteristics of the parables, but talk to Pastor Hayden and I about that. Let's dive into the Gospel of Mark. Very quickly and briefly, but also in detail. Here we go. <laughs> Mark 1-1, underline it. This is the thesis statement. This is Mark's thesis that he's going to prove for the rest of the Gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, and right away goes right into the um, ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, the temptations. You notice the temptations that you preach through? Only two verses here. Because he's getting to <laughs> the point. He's get just to like, the point. Hey, I, I get to quick. the point. I get to get to the point. Because he's getting to the point of the message. And the same message in Matthew is found in the first chapter of Mark. Matthew took four chapters. Mark's like, hey, the message of Jesus, repent and what? Believe in the gospel. I love it. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, by the way. I love it. And so this is the message that he's going to preach, and then he's about to, he calls his first disciples. So right away, Mark 1, we're in Matthew 4 right now. He calls his disciples. But the thing you need to notice, remember the question we're trying to ask here, who is this guy? We know who he is. We know the spoilers. Mm -hmm. But you got to think through, like, they don't know who this guy is. So right in the end of after he calls his disciples, he does his ministry in the first eight chapters in the region of Galilee. Mm -hmm. And so while they're in Capernaum, he uh, he's able to, well, he's able to, he's God. So he casts that unclean spirit, and people are going, who is this guy, this new teacher with authority? Right. So and, who call, to, but, and what do they, do you, you going to get to that? Baby? What do they call him? The demons. He unclean says, spirits. Yeah, unclean spirits. Oh. I know who you are, the holy one of God. Like, it was already clear Mark is saying that these demons called him out for who he is. You are the holy one of God. And just like what James says, even the demons believe in shudder. So right. here the demons are who God is, but unfortunately so many people in the gospel of Mark are just so blind because of mm -hmm. their sin. And so the demons are who God is. People are going, who is this guy? And so he, who is this guy? He's the one that has authority. Mm -hmm. All right. Next, he he heals many. Something that you're notice is that uh, that Mark presents that Jesus Jesus as the uh, the suffering servant, the suffering son of God. He just serves, man. I mean, right away heals many. He is pouring himself out. He's healing many who are sick and cast out many demons. And then early the next morning, you're gonna notice that. Early in the morning, late in the evening, early in the morning, late in the evening, he's doing his work. In the end of Mark 1, he cleanses a leper. Wait, 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 wait. go go to uh, verses 37 through 39 first. I love this because everyone's looking for him because he's healing people and he's doing a lot of these great things. And the disciples say, hey, everyone's looking for you. Come out here. And he says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for th that is why I came out. I love that. Jesus saying, I have come to preach the message of the good news of Christ, like his good news of the kingdom. It wasn't it wasn't primarily to heal the sick and the lame and the blind. That was a proof of the of his power and authority that his message 
proved that I am the Son of God to come to save people from the sins of um, that separated them from God, and I've come to preach this, and that's why I came out. So not go save, every, not go heal every single uh, failing body, but that I may preach this message that all those who have failing bodies and all those who are in sin may respond to me and uh, have bodies that will be imperishable one day. I love so who that. is Jesus? He's the one that is bringing the fulfillment of the good news that mm-hmm. God promised in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. which leads into the proof of the leper. He, he's the one that can make what is unclean clean. Uh, going to chapter 2, fast the forwarding, the yeah. paralytic. He's the one that forgives sins. Remember, that's the focus. Right. Remember, verse 5, yes. Yeah. Son, your sins are forgiven. I love that. In verse 10, so that you may know that I have authority, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, stand up. And that right. happens. So he healed him. Not to be nice, but to prove. I mean, he is nice. It but, is nice. No, but, yeah, he does, but to prove that he is the one that right. can forgive. Since we just got to remember Jesus what is. the miracles were always for. They were pointing to the fact that he was always able and is able and is still able to forgive our sins, and that is proved through the visible, uh, the visible reality that he healed someone's uh, lameness and blindness and deafness and even healed people, rose people from the dead. But all to prove that he could do greater things, which is put us in the right relationship with a holy, just, perfect, loving God. And just before we move on, to remember, this is the declaration, declaration, I can't even say that. Declaration. Declaration, wow, <laughs> of the Old Testament. That the Son of Man, you got to remember Daniel Daniel 7, the Son of Man who's going to reign and rule, and then Isaiah, the suffering servant, was going to he's going to take on his in, the iniquities of man on himself, and he's going to be the one that can forgive sins. And so Mark's just proving that. Right. So, and then in verse seventeen of chapter two, those. Oh, one second. Oh, go ahead. Before that, who is he fellowshiping with? Tax collectors and sinners. And so he's bringing those who are you know at the end of themselves who are cast out. He's bringing them to themselves because he's trying to reach sinners mm-hmm. for the sinners to just oh hang out and eat food. No, no. He's calling them to repent and right. change their lives. And then he calls a sinner, Levi, also known as Matthew. Matthew, whose gospel we are going through verse by verse. And he tells him, come follow me, you sinner. And I love in verse 17, it says, Jesus heard what was said about him spending time with sinners. And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came, this is important, why did he come? Not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Matthew adds, to repentance. Right? He's come to call these people to turn from their sin and place your trust in him. We always got to remember, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? We always have to ask ourselves that question because if we take context, to take verses out of context, we come to a lot of different conclusions, maybe in our culture, in our world, why Jesus came. But it says it very clearly here. I've come to call sinners. All right. And, and moving quickly, because Mark does, I mean, the, who is Jesus? <laughs> He's the he is the bridegroom in in, math, in Mark two eighteen. Uh, who is Jesus? The end of Mark. He is the Lord of the Sabbath in chapter uh, three. In, in the, the chapter I'm sorry, two. in chapter two. And then chapter three. Who who is Jesus? He's the one that really defines what it is to fulfill the Sabbath, which yeah. is to do good. Right. Um. And then next, you know, he uh, the great crowds following him, and the unclean spirit again. You are the Son of God, proving yes, Jesus. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. And then kind of slowing down just one second when he calls his 12 apostles. He went up to a mountain, detail, and he called those who, who desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12, um, and he also named them apostles, that they'd be with him and send them out to preach. This is Old Testament, you know, Old Testament um, language here. The Mount Sinai, who was there? The 12 tribes of Israel who were to do what? To be 
kingdom of priests to the world to preach the good news that there's reconciliation with Yahweh. Mm -hmm. But now Jesus is doing it with these 12. Up on a mountain, calling 12 So who is Jesus? He is Yahweh. Um, Next, the the scene of the uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, people, and you notice it's the Jewish leaders are saying, this man, this person is the prince of demons. He's Satan himself. And obviously this is the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, in, in verse 27, is revealing, no, no, I'm not Satan because how I'm is that? Strong. How is it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit right there? Because they're equating the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan. And that's blasphemous to call what is the work of the Spirit the work of Satan. Because at least for the Son of Man, he's veiled, but the Holy Spirit is clear. Right. And so rejecting that is rejecting God completely. But verse 27 of Mark 3, who is Jesus? He's the strong man ooh, that can ooh, go take back to, down go, Satan. Go but, back to verse 30 real quick, because remember, during the, the baptism of Jesus, what, what happened? The Holy Spirit came upon him. And in verse 30, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And so they were saying that the spirit that come upon Jesus at his baptism was an unclean spirit, which would be blasphemy. But that That's just like a, like a particular way that you look, should look at verse 30 and say, uh, oh, I know why that's now blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Not just ambiguous, but a real good example of verse 30 showing you they are calling Jesus being indwelt with the Spirit of God the indwellment of Satan. That's really, I think I think that's a, is that a good that observation? Is ex- no, that's, that is dead on, and that observation is, is critical. And again, notice the rejection. Who's rejecting? The people that you expect to follow the Messiah, but they were not. They were actually right. showing how hard their hearts were. And then who is Jesus? And who's actually of Jesus? Who's the disciple? Those who do the will of his father, not just blood relation, not just his mom and his siblings. No, it was those, those who, who submit to the will of God. Isn't that? That's what we said in the sermon today. That's right. And so now you, um, in the first four chapters, this is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And then that next is kind of focusing on just you know, snapshots of the ministry, including the slowdown in Mark 4 of the parables. This is like one of the few teaching moments One of, of the few, yeah, sections of teaching. There's not a lot of teaching blocks in the book of Mark. More about the events of Jesus' life than the teachings of Jesus' And life. with chapter 4, in Parable of the Seeds, something should be uh, no, uh, familiar. Um, and also, but the point of the parables is in verse 11. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that... They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And what Jesus is saying is that he doesn't, he's like, I don't want to forgive these people. No, these people are sinful. They're evil. They don't want me. Their hearts are hardened. And so I speak in a way that when people who do desire to follow me, they'll ask questions and say, Mm -hmm. God, what do you mean? Help us to help me to understand and help me to help me follow you to do the will of the father who is in heaven. And so with these parables, uh, the questions to keep asking is, okay, who is Jesus, but also who is in Jesus' kingdom? That's mm-hmm. a good question to ask. And then Mark 4 ends with Jesus calming the storm. And again, who is Jesus? He's the one that the, the wind and sea obey him. He is the God that created and mm-hmm. continues to sustain creation to this day. Um, all right, shooting off in chapter five, another demon account, and it's back to back to back right away. And what does he call him in chapter in verse seven? Son of the Most High God. Again, proving even the demons say this is God. This is the Son of God. And then number three, this is the third demon account uh, in in detail. And this one's like the big Kahuna because yeah. there's a legion of demons. thousands of demons in this person. 
And so those who come, they're most likely Gentiles because they had a, a herd of pigs, or they're really disobedient Jews, but most likely Gentiles. Yeah. And then when they cast the demons out... Yeah, because uh, they're in the country of the Gerasenes, which is by Tiberius, right? Yep, in the nation, think, in the region. Is it? Yeah. Okay. And so... Which would mean they were Gentiles. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, all that to say... They begged Jesus to leave after what they saw what happened, probably because out of fear and also like you just destroyed our whole livelihood. Yeah. And Jesus is like, do you care more about your livelihood or this man's life? And then this is the account where you we see where this man says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no. Which is But why? Important. Because he says, you need to go back and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. And this guy's a great missionary. This is like one of the first missionaries. Yep. And he goes out and what does this guy do? He proclaims in the region of the Gentiles, the Decapolis, how much Jesus Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Wow. I can't wait to meet that guy. I love it. I can't wait to meet that guy in eternity. Yeah. But I do love the point you were making with this fact that, you know, after these pigs have been thrown off the mountain, everyone was more concerned about the pigs than the fact that this man had been saved and redeemed, and it just shows the hardness of the heart that people had, that they cared more about swine than they did the soul of a man who had been uh, possessed by a legion of demons. Let our hearts not be hardened to the fact that we care more about things and less about souls. All right, and wrapping up in chapter 5, who is Jesus? He's the one as he the woman touches him, his garments, as he's on on the way to, uh, to heal uh, a daughter, a man's daughter, she touches him and he, she's healed. And then the daughter turns out she died and Jesus rose her from the dead. So who is Jesus? He's the one that if you, who, if you are unclean, he will make you clean. And also he's the one that's going to defeat death. Hmm. And so it lands us in Mark chapter six. This you're going to notice from chapter six on is a continual rejection of Jesus. Beginning with the rejection at Nazareth. In Nazareth, in the area of Galilee, in his hometown. So people are like, if I see Jesus, I'll follow him. I doubt it, because there's plenty of people who saw him and yet refused to follow him. And something to remember is remember in Matthew, the woes to the areas of the cities that he did ministry in, and even Capernaum, that they were considered worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And so this is just, if you reject Jesus you know, the, the wrath that you will face is not going to be good. Yeah. And so you, turn. You're, you're paired with some of the worst cities in history. So then who is Jesus? Uh, verse 7, Jesus sends out his disciples two by two and gives them authority over cl- unclean spirits. And so who is Jesus? He's the one that can give authority to us to right. do his ministry. To yeah, He empowers call. us to do the work of his mission. And what is the focus? Is it just to cast out demons? No. Verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that should, people should repent. Yeah, look at that. Verse 12 again. So much we just want to teach you guys that, man, the miracles of God are so profound and so amazing, and we have to, we, but we need to make the miracles about the message, and the message was always calling people to repentance, and all the miracles showed God's provision and his providence and his sovereignty uh, and, and the proof of his message and the efficacious nature of his message. And his miracles have always been about providing a way for his people to come to him and the proof that he has the power to bring us into right relationship with him. All right, and landing, landing the plane. Landing gear is out, Compass. We have the death of John the Baptist, and how does this have to do with who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is not John the Baptist because that's who Herod thought he was. Yeah. Is this John the Baptist coming back? Yeah. And it's like, no, it's not. Jesus is not John the Baptist. Instead, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus feeding the 5,000, as we talked to Matthew, is a symbol that Jesus is a greater Moses who was able to you know, lead his people in the wilderness. But who fed Israel in the wilderness? God. God. And then 
but also this is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that this is the shepherd king that is going to provide for his people. And so Jesus Psalm is a greater, 23. Jesus is a greater um, Moses and the shepherd that was looked forward to in the Davidic covenant. So who is Jesus? He is the Davidic king, the shepherd king, the servant king. And then ending um, with Jesus walking on water, uh, the reason why, just notice in verse 20, 52, why did the disciples not recognize him and figure it out was because their hearts were hardened. Jesus had to soften them. And so when Jesus goes across over the, the Sea of Galilee again, people immediately recognized him. And this servant king went and healed people and ministered to them and served them, just showing what kind of God this is. The kind of compassionate God who cares about our very lives and our very souls. All right. Well, Compass, that was the Blitz through Mark 1 through 6, and I'm looking forward to next week's DBR Spotlight. All right. To end, we got some really important announcements. Just a recap on our Disciple Now. We had 58 students registered for our Discipleship Now this week, and they had a blast, and they got to sit under four sessions of the Word of God being taught. We want you to pray for a couple of things. Pray for salvations to come out of this weekend that students would recognize their separation from God and they would turn from their sin and place their trust in him through the work and life of Jesus Christ. And then be praying for those who are saved, that they would continue walking in faith, trusting in Christ and uh, being sanctified in their in their lives. We have our women's breakfast next Saturday, the 25th at 9 a.m. We want to encourage you to be there, invite women to come with you. Uh, Kayla will be preaching in continuing in the book of James. Then the next day, after the 11 o'clock service on February 26th, we have our first session of Exploring Compass. We'll be closing the registration for that really, really soon because we are full, which is such a praise, and we look forward to to 26th and March 5th for our next two sessions of Exploring Compass. But if you have not gone through Exploring Compass, we have a new session coming up in a month or so. We'd love for you to go ahead and jump on that list. Register now for that uh, session of Exploring Compass. And then that evening, we have our prayer night, February 26th from 5 to 6.30. We will gather as a body to worship together, to pray together, to intercede for our community, to intercede for our church and one another, and pray for God to accomplish His will through our church and our lives. We also, the very next week, or two weeks after that, we have our men's breakfast. Pastor Evan really wants us to get this one out on the calendar, March 11th at 9 a.m. Remember it this way, church, men's breakfasts and fellowships are always on the second Saturday of every month. Women's breakfasts and women's fellowships are always on the fourth Saturday of every month. It's an easy way to put that on your calendar. And last announcement, our Family Matters Conference is on April 15th from 9 a.m. to noon, and we'll have a special guest uh, speakers, Dr. Mike Fabares will be here, uh, our pastor of our Sending Church, talking about how to raise children. Yes, he has a book on it. And so we'll have that book here as well as a resource for you to purchase. We'll be giving you other resources as well to take home for free. We have Rick Talcott, who is the CFO of our church planning organization, as well as uh, the uh, financial administrator of our Sending Church. Rick Talcott has decades of experience in uh, corporate finance, real estate finance, personal finance, institutional finance, all those things to, to say this, that he's going to be able to help us a lot, making sure that we're managing our finances in a way that honors God uh, and is helpful for our families, our homes, and our church. Uh, we have more to announce in the coming days, but we really look forward to looking at what God's going to do through our Family Matters Conference. You should register today at compasshillcountry.org. It's $10 per person, and uh, for 6th grade to 
however old you are, uh, and free for anyone from birth to fifth grade. And we have Compass Kids available for those who register for free. Uh, we also need people to serve. And so if you want to serve, whether that's in kids or whether it's in parking or greeting or any of those particular areas, we'd love for you to uh, serve with us. If you're interested, please let your life group leader know or your serve team leader if you're already serving here. And we'd love to have uh, you serving us as we serve the people of God here at Compass. Thank you, Compass, for tuning in to our Compass Equip podcast. We look forward to all that God is going to do in your life and in the life of our church. We'll see you next week. Thank you.